Children, you are invited to attend children's worship at this time. I know uh, we get a little weird sometimes with like our seating and position in church, but I'm telling you, the best seats in the house are sitting up front here, um, especially when, when we're singing together. Um, it's a wonderful thing um, just to hear all the voices as one. Um, I invite you to join me this morning in your copy of the Word in 1 Timothy. Uh, if you forgot your Bible or um, don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the backs of the seats. Um, if you don't own a Bible, take that um, as a gift. Read it. Use it. If you know someone who needs one, take that. Give that to them. Uh, but in that Bible, you'll find yourself on page 1096, um, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. And before we get to the text itself, um, I, I need to I feel the need of our topic this morning uh, to do some groundwork um, or to, to throw out some appetizers before the meal uh, main course this morning, because we're talking about money uh, this morning. We're talking about wealth, um, and uh, that can always get a little dicey depending on how we talk about those things and how we deal with those things. So I have three parts um, to my introduction this morning. One of those parts is for clarification so that you don't interpret something I'm saying as something I'm not actually saying. So trying to help the Holy Spirit out here and add some clarification. Um, another part um, is for connection to the text because oftentimes when we read the Bible, um, some of these things can feel strange or for, far off and foreign to us. Um, and then the third part is for direction that we're going to go this morning. Um, so, for clarification, um, I, I want us to avoid some ditches this morning, um, so to speak. There are a couple of ditches when we talk about wealth, when we talk about money, that I think we can fall into. And one of those, um, one side uh, happens to be, I think, elevating poverty um, and seeing that as a more noble thing um, than having a lot of stuff. And that can lead to us thinking that um, if we're living in poverty, that kind of thing lead to frivolous, unwise stewardship of the things that God gives us. Uh, and the other side of the ditch um, would be that we stay comfortable uh, in our wealth and are never forced to deal with uh, where our hearts truly lie and what do we truly worship. And so uh, if we've been really good with our finances and if we've managed our money really well, um, it can create this pride that allows us to look our noses down at other people who maybe haven't done such a good job at that um, and, and see ourselves as more faithful than others. So I want to avoid that this morning. So in order to avoid that, I want to make this statement. Um, at no point and in no place in Scripture um, does God elevate people who are poor above anybody else. And at no point in Scripture is the possession of wealth itself an evil, sinful thing. So having things itself uh, is not wrong, um, but actually we're told that, that if God does decide to give us anything, it's a good gift that he gives for our enjoyment, for his glory. Um, and so I want us to avoid those things this morning. I'm, I'm not condemning you if you find yourself to be a wealthy person this morning, or maybe you think you're not. Um, kind of by nature of living here and being here this morning, you actually are wealthy. Um, regardless of where you find yourself socioeconomically. Uh, but the second thing for, for connection to the text. So Paul's writing to young Pastor Timothy in the city of Ephesus. Um, Ephesus is a thoroughly Greco-Roman city. Uh, it is a large city. It's a wealthy city. Uh, it's home to the Library of Celsius, which was the third largest in antiquity. Uh, it's home to the largest 
amphitheater in the ancient world. Uh, and if you're really familiar with your ancient history, you actually know that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was built in Ephesus in the temple, the great temple of Artemis. Artemis uh, being a Greco-Roman goddess, uh, and there's a large cult following. Um, you read about Paul and his planting the church there in the book of Acts. Uh, so it's a thoroughly wealthy city, and a large city, so they, the way that they determine the size of cities uh, in the ancient world, not that you care about this, but I'm nerding out right now, um, <laughs> they look at the size of the amphitheaters that were there, and they multiply that times 10. So the theater in Ephesus was 25 to 30,000 people. So Ephesus is a fairly large city, especially for its day. To give you an idea, Lancaster County alone has 550,000 people in it. So the city of Ephesus alone um, is fairly large. It's a wealthy place. Uh, and, and so living where we live today, as I already mentioned, um, you live in a wealthy place. Uh, you live in Lancaster County in 2023, and there's all kinds of wealth um, in this place. Uh, and so I think there's a deep connection as Paul instructs Timothy, instruct the rich among you to live this way. Uh, and so there's something there for us um, to think about. And so that begs the question then, um, let, me, let me actually first, before I get to, to the question, to think about this, um, money. It's, it's been widely written about, uh, people have all kinds of thoughts and opinions and and things like that, and, and people have had lots to say about it throughout the years. Um, uh, the American vaudeville actor and, and star Will Rogers uh, said it this way, um, too many people spend money they earn to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. <laughs> Jonathan Swift, who's an 18th century poet and clergyman, said it this way, a wise person should have money in their head but not in their heart. Uh, Epictetus, who is an ancient philosopher, I don't know if I'm saying that right, I'm just going to say it with confidence like that's right. Uh, he's an ancient philosopher from the city of Hierapolis. Uh, and he, he had this to say, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. And then finally, Ralph Waldo Emerson, famous poet, 19th century author, uh, said it this way, money often costs too much. Right, money has played a significant role throughout human history. So the question then becomes for Christians, for followers of God, for his people, how should we think about it? How should we think about our material possessions? Or to take it the direction I want to go this morning, how do we give our lives away in order to gain true life? How do we give our lives away in order to gain true life? Let's pray before we dig into the text. God, we need your spirit this morning. Uh, we need your spirit to bring conviction where we need conviction. Um, we need your spirit to encourage us where we need encouragement. And we need your spirit to open our eyes, to give us ears to hear, to give us soft hearts to receive the seed of your word. And also that you would be glorified and magnified in us. And it's in Jesus' name, by your spirit, Lord, we ask these things. Amen. So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth, 
Now, uh, the, that's the English Standard Version. The Berean Study Bible puts it this way. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be conceited and not to put their hope in the uncertainty of wealth. So there's a problem that we all have. There's a problem that they all deal with um, by being sinful from the time we're born. And, and that problem is that we don't have a cute, clear picture of the world. We, we do not have a clear view of reality as it is, at least not entirely. And so uh, we are all naturally born with this, and that deception, so to speak, um, grows when we have our hopes in false gods, when we worship things that aren't the true God. And when we worship foreign gods, and when we have our hopes in these things, what ends up happening is we miss out on true faith, and all of our time and all of our efforts and all of our focus ends up on temporal things rather than eternal things. Speaking to people of God specifically in that scenario. So we end up thinking that if, if I can reach this financial goal, if I can hit this number, if I can accumulate this much, um, then I'll be set. Then I'll be good to go. Then I'll be content. Or if you're like me, um, which a confession I, I have a love-hate relationship with preaching. I love preaching, but if I'm going to preach God's word, that means I have to live it uh, myself. And so when it comes to things like this, if you're like me, I start to think if I could just pay off this debt, if I could just get rid of that, then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. Then things will be good. But when we do that, when we have our hopes in the wrong places, um, we end up missing the eternal things. Uh, so our livelihood, our joy, our happiness, our contentment uh, become attached to our paycheck uh, or how the economy is doing or the stock, stock market rather than putting our hope where it ought to be. And perhaps the worst deception of all that comes when we do what Paul warns against here um, is when our hope is in riches and temporal things, the uncertainty of wealth, or whatever your translation says there, um, the worst deception of all is that we begin to believe that we don't need God. Why would I need God? I've got all the power and money and wealth that I need right here. I'm content in that. And, and so this is something that the people of God have had to be warned against for their entire history. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, um, I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, right before, this is right before God's people are going into the promised land. He, he's giving them his law, he's giving them instructions. This is what he says. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with great and splendid cities that you did not build, with houses full of every good thing with which you did not fill them, with wells that, did not, that you did not dig, and with vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And listen to this. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, right? God knew that in, in giving his people the promised land, in having them enter into this place, the danger was going to be that when they ate and they were satisfied, they would forget about him. They would forget 
Um, once they were given everything, they, you know, they just spent 40 years wandering in the desert. Uh, and once he gave them everything that he had promised them, there was a danger that they would forget him. This is the same danger for us today. Uh, and, and again, jumping to the New Testament, the city of Laodicea in Revelation that Jesus, one of the seven churches that Jesus um, writes a letter to. Well, let me give you a little background on Laodicea. Like, Laodicea was filthy rich. Like they were stupid rich with how much money that they had. So here's, here's a story about this city. So um, at one point in time in the valley that Laodicea was, there's a, there's a giant earthquake that does serious damage, not just to them, but to surrounding cities. Um, and, and they have a lot of, lot of cleanup to do after that. Um, Rome comes in and, and they say, hey, we're going to come in. We're going to help you rebuild. We're going to help you um, and fix this. And Laodicea's like, nah, we got it. We're all right. We don't need any help because they were so wealthy. Most places only had one amphitheater. Laodicea has two. So we're talking like really wealthy people. And this is what Jesus says to them. Pay attention to this. You say I am rich. I have grown wealthy and need nothing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, what Paul's instructing Timothy here to the believers in Ephesus, because they were a wealthy people, he, he says, instruct them, warn them not to become conceited in their wealth, not to become proud in their wealth, not to put their hope in things. What the, the word that he actually uses is like, you put your hope in the, the uncertainty of wealth, you're actually putting your hope in nothing at all. There's really no trust to be had there because there's nothing to trust in because it's so uncertain. That's the same danger for us. When we put our hope in the temporal things, in the things that end and come and go, we become deceived into playing God. And so actually what we're going to see in our text this morning, that Paul has a really actually logical flow of where this goes. So don't be conceited. Don't put your hope in wealth. But continuing on in verse 17, he says this, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So, so it's almost like Paul offers kind of an antidote here, okay, if, if putting your hope in these things causes conceit, causes deception, uh, is, is a hope that's actually not hopeless at all, here's, here's the way out of that, generosity good works, do good things, be ready to share your things. Um, Jim Elliott uh, is one of the missionaries, if you're familiar with the end of the spear, the movie or the book, you've read that. He's one of the missionaries that goes to the Alca people in South America um, to take the gospel to people that had never heard it. He, he and other missionaries are killed. Um, but in his journal, we have his journals and one of his most famous sayings, um, one of my favorites of his, he says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And, and so what Paul is getting at here, the Christian life, the life of the people of God is to be marked by a generosity that kind of looks insane, insane to an unbelieving world. The life of the Christian is to be marked by sacrifice to the point that it doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, to a world um, looking on. And I, I may step on some toes here, 
and I hope to be, again, hope to be clear here, I am not at all convinced that you can directly link this idea of saving money for retirement to being a follower of Jesus. Let that sit for a minute. Not at all convinced that you can, you can link those two together. Now, if you're doing those things, if you're saving money, if you, you, like you, you're doing that kind of stuff, um, because you want to give, because you want to provide for people, because you want to help other people, and because you want to be able to pay your bills. I don't think there's anything sinful about that. But if you're doing those things so that you'll have comfort, you'll have security, and so you can call what Americans would see as the good life, I think there's some hard evaluation that we have to do there about why we're doing these sorts of things. All right, when, when, when Scripture, we read in 2 Corinthians that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, that like actual word means insane giver. Like, so you kind of look like a crazy person with how, how you give and how you care about people. Especially when it comes to saving and all of this kind of stuff, um, when in the Western church we have a discipleship problem. Here's what I mean by that. If you've saved and maybe you're planning with your savings, you're going to leave a bunch of money to the church. That's cool. We'll take your money. Like we'll, do, <laughs> we'll do what God wants us to do with that. But if you've saved all that money and you did not pass on the riches of heaven to the coming generations, you have failed as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We have failed as a disciple of Jesus Christ. If as, as elders, as leaders, as parents, as grandparents, as just church members in general, if we have failed to pass on the riches of Jesus Christ to the people coming after us, I don't care how big a check you can cut. None of that matters because you failed to faithfully follow Jesus and be a disciple who makes disciples. So depending on why you want to do those things, I don't think that you can necessarily equate that with wisdom and good stewardship of your resources. And let me give you a couple of examples of this that maybe help try to get what I think Paul's getting at and what um, my wife and I have experienced in our lives. Both of us, um, we lived in homes where none of, neither of us were worried about where our next meal was going to come from. Neither of us were worried about whether or not we are going to have clothes. Neither of us were worried about whether or not we were going to have a place to live. None of that. And as a parent, you want to provide that, right? That's good parenting to provide the necessities for your kids. And neither of us, and hopefully I'm speaking, hopefully this, this is years from now, when they pass away and are no longer here, we're not expecting that they leave us a big fat check. Like we're not just waiting around for mom and dad to die so that we can get some sort of big check. What has been important in our lives from both of our parents is the legacy of faith that they've left in us. Um, and the things that they are going to pass down to their grandkids, uh, the faith and the self-sacrificial living that we saw them demonstrate for us as we were growing up and as we were living. Like hospitality was one of the things, like I, I saw my parents, there wasn't anyone that wasn't welcome in our home. We were having neighbors over all the time. We had family members all the time. We, like, we bring friends home from school. They were all welcome. Girlfriends, like, all welcome. They, they taught us a, a, a hospitality that, that reflects the heart of Jesus. That's what our parents left to us. Not a lot of money. Uh, the early church is actually marked by 
crazy generosity and self-sacrificing way. There's a, there's a document called um, The Apology of Aristides to Caesar Hadrian that's out there. You can find it on the internet. And I've shared this with us before, but uh, Aristides was a guy who was going in in the second century, going into the Christians in the church and investigating because um, they weren't quite sure what to do with these people. <laughs> they, they weren't sh- quite sure what to make of these Christians, uh, these followers of the way. And so this guy comes in and he, and he gives a report to Hadrian of what these people were like. And as a part of that report, here's, here's part of it I want to read for you this morning. He says this, And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in as their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of the Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And this, is, this, is, this, is a, this is crazy. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life, their way of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in their midst. I keep, that on my off- I keep this on my office wall, and I pray that we would be that type of people, that when people are among us, they, there is something divine in their midst, and primarily because of how crazy generous we are with one another and the way that we love one another. Acts chapter 2, verse 45 says, um, selling their possessions and goods they shared with anyone who was in need. This has been the mark of the church. Uh, So this thing that Paul is instructing to Timothy to tell to the rich in your congregation, this is not a foreign thing. This is not a new thing that he's instructing them. Be rich in good works. Rather than putting your hope on these temporary things, on the, on the riches and wealth of this world, rather than putting it there, instead, be rich in good works. Do good. Be ready to share as the needs arise. And all of this is not just for the sake of charity. Paul's not telling the Jews just because it's good to do good and it's nice to be a good neighbor and, and help people out. He's got a reason for that. There's a reason that he tells them, don't live this way, live this way. And that reason is this, in verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Maybe some of your translations use the term firm foundation um, for the future. So if wealth deceives us and wealth blinds us, uh, to hoping in things that we shouldn't hope in and, and all of that. And, and generosity is sort of the key to opening our eyes. We're doing that for something that we can't lose. We're building on something that we can't lose. So don't hear this wrong. Paul's not saying that by doing enough good things, that by being generous enough, and that by, by being good enough, you can earn right standing with God. He's not advocating for that. What he is saying, And what he is advocating for is an understanding of a people who know that Jesus paid it all. An understanding that Jesus is the firm foundation. He does this one mind. His instruction is this. If you read the rest of of his letter to Timothy, you'll see these things come out. With the understanding that Jesus is where true life is found. So, So all of us, I want you to think back. And if you're not here and you don't know Jesus more, I'm going to talk to you here in a second. But for those of us that do, think back for a moment. If you can remember the time that you first heard the gospel, 
you heard of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that how putting your faith in him and putting your trust in him uh, would grant you eternal life. There would be forgiveness of sins and all of those things. At the moment that you did that, you started living. Like that was where your life began. Up until that point, you were simply existing. Like a dead man walking. You were there, but you weren't really there. And then you met Jesus. And you heard the call of the gospel. And you responded with the empty hands of faith. And said, I believe he's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life that can save me. If you're here this morning. And you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't know what life is. I tell you what. When he invites someone in, when he draws us to himself, when he offers us the gospel, he's offering real life, eternal life, life that doesn't end, and that's not based on something we do. And so what Paul's saying here is because of that, because of this firm foundation in Jesus, you give, you sacrifice. Let me put it this way, because I think maybe in the Western church, maybe we haven't understood this all the time when we've been called to put our faith and trust in Jesus. The moment that you did that, you were committing to a life of self-denial. That's what you were committing to. You were saying that the stuff that I have, the wealth that I have is no longer mine. I'm not the captain of my faith. I'm not the master of my destiny. Jesus is now, and anything that I have is his. Because I don't want you to miss that small phrase that Paul made. Because God's the one who gives you the gifts anyway. And why does he give you those gifts? For your enjoyment. The irony is that when our hope is in wealth, we don't get to enjoy it. It robs us of life. Because we're constantly worried about whether or not we're going to be able to do this, or trying to, trying to move money around here, and like stresses you out what it does. My wife lets me do the budget because she hates dealing with money. Her hope's not in money. Um, if it were up to us, we're actually really good for one another because she's really crazy generous um, to the point where we might not have a house. If, if, if <laughs> and I'm stingy. Like I'm, like, I'm trying to save, and I'm trying to, like, manipulate, and I'm trying to move stuff here, right? But the life of following Jesus is a life decidedly marked by self-sacrifice and self-denial. Saying, what I have is no longer mine. So you take it or leave it, Jesus. I have you. That's all that I need. When you submit your life to Jesus, that needs to come with the fundamental understanding um, that that day you died and Jesus came in and took over and now runs your life. And so my life is going to be marked by him and what he wants me to do and by command here right this isn't a suggestion this is also not a rebuke so he's not rebuking the church he, he's just he's commanding he's instructing he's warning don't put your hope in this but build on a foundation that doesn't end where true life actually is to take hold of that and so we give out of an understanding that in Christ there are infinite riches to give from. We, we, we can't fathom how generous 
God has been to us in Jesus. Right? We, we read from Paul this morning. He talks about who, who's given to God that he should repay them. Who's given counsel, Lord? How the depths of his riches and his mercy are unfathomable for us. And so it's out of that heart that we give. Give it all away. So we come to this understanding of building on a firm foundation that our hope and our life is found in Christ and Christ alone. And that building on the foundation of Jesus is where the wise man builds his house. Not on your 401k. Not on how big your paycheck is or how how healthy your bank account is. That's where the foolish man builds his life. But the wise man hears the words of Jesus and builds his life on those. Understands that's the only place it can be found. So how you doing? Are we embracing this call to give our lives away now so as to take hold of true life in Christ and his finished work on the cross. How do we, what do we do with this? Is the question that I think comes then. So a couple of things. And I, I, I'm hoping this application is fitting across the board. Um, whether you're young and single, whether you're married, or whether, where, wherever you find yourself in life. Um, go home. Evaluate your budget. And this is, I'll say this for free. If you don't budget, this is not a spiritual command. This is not something from Paul. This is seven aside here. Um, I think it's just a wise thing to do. To have a budget set up so you can keep track of what's coming and what's going and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's wise. And it's a helpful evaluation tool to go home and ask yourself this question. Husbands, wives, parents, do this with your kids. Teach them young. Um, does the way we spend our finances reflect the sacrificial, generous heart of Christ? Does the way that we spend our wealth, our resources, does it reflect the riches of Christ and what he's given to us? And then ask some follow-up questions. Who has God placed around us to be rich in good works towards? Who has who God placed? What opportunities are there around us that we can do good to. I'll say this, and not as a sort of like pleading for your money thing for the church. I'm saying if you call Grace Church your home, you call this your family, it should sort of be like a natural thing to be like a portion of what God gives us is going to come back here. Why? Because I can tell you this, the elders of this church are phenomenal men, and they are seeking to use the finances that are given to this church to fulfill the mission of God. For his people, if we ever get like big donations, the question is not, hey, let's put this away and let's make sure that we're safe for the future. The question becomes, how can we use this to advance the kingdom and be good stewards of what God has given us? That's the, those are the questions they're asking. So that should at least be part of the answer if you're not already doing that. And if you don't know where to go, you don't know who to help, we already mentioned it in the, in the announcement, there is an entire group of people in this church um, that their sole purpose is to help meet the needs of other people. And we'd be glad to show you where you can help and, and do good and share together and give from what God has given to you. So go home and do that sometime this week, whether that's today or, or whatever. 
evaluate and ask that question. Does the way we spend our resources reflect the generous heart of Christ? Are we kind of playing it safe so that we don't have to live in faith and trust him? And then the second thing, and maybe I should have led with this because I think it's more heart-level foundational. Um, the second thing that you need to do, that I need to do, that we have to do as Christians is remember the riches of Christ. Christians are Christians best when we remember this reality well, that in Christ we have a well that will not run dry of living water. We have a treasure in Christ that is inexhaustible. Like there's nothing that you need that he cannot provide specifically, primarily in your salvation for the rest of your life. Like, God's not limited in his resources, but sometimes it seems like we live that way. God's not limited in what he can do and what he can give, and he's not waiting on us to make a move. We are Christians best when we understand that Christ is all. When we understand that Jesus really is enough, as, as the hymn, Christ is all, says, I found a treasure that can't be taken, found a well that won't run dry, O worldly pleasure be now forsaken, behold what love, what life is mine, could endless striving now make me righteous, could all my works grant me hope, O hallelujah, the blood of Jesus, my only plea, my only hope, Christ is all, Christ is all, and my song will ever be, Christ is all. So sing it in your songs. Hopefully you're singing songs throughout the week and praising God. Sing it in your songs. Put it on the walls of your house so that you don't forget of the endless riches of Christ and the sufficiency of him in the covenant and the promise that he's made to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember the riches of Christ and live out of those. So God's not opposed to us having wealth. He's opposed to it having us. God gives us good things. He's the giver of good gifts. The problem is we often elevate those gifts over the giver of them. And so we want God for what he can get us more than we want God himself. And so we end up trading temporary security and comfort for eternal life. He gives us the good things so that we can enjoy them and enjoy him and bring Glory to him. The saints who have gone before us have traded everything in this life so that they would take hold of that true life. And there's a song by a woman named Elisa Smith, and the part of the bridge of that song uh, goes like this. But what if heaven is cheering me on? David's singing your song. Mary's shouting, waste it all, because he is worth it. The roads of Christianity have been paved with the blood of those who believed that in Christ they had all that they need, so they would give everything to take hold of that true life. So the question remains for us, will we do the same?